Well, thank you, choir. Well, we have started a new series a few weeks ago, and if you're visiting with us, we are glad that you're here, and uh, it'll be easy for you to jump into it and to follow. And, uh, typically, not uh, one week does not you know, bleed into the one before, and so every message stands alone as we go through this series entitled Burning Questions. We're calling that because the uh, questions have been submitted by you over the course of about seven or eight weeks or so, some of those online. Most of those have been submitted in the lobby, all of them anonymously, and uh, we seek to answer those questions from a biblical perspective. And uh, they've been interesting questions. They've been great questions. And the, again, the title of the series is Burning Questions, and the specific focus of that through these few weeks has been uh, marriage and relationships. We started things off a few weeks ago by looking at the foundation of marriage, really the starting point. And we looked at how marriage, from a biblical perspective, is a covenant. It's not a contract. It's not something that we uh, seek to get out of when, we tired, when we're tired of it or want something different. It's a covenant that we make before God with another person. And uh, so Scripture really paints that picture. So first, the very first week, we looked at the, the foundation of marriage as a covenant. And the second week, we answered the most commonly asked questions. And they dealt with the topic of leadership within the marriage, spiritual leadership. And so the Bible is very clear that it's the husband's responsibility to lead in his marriage spiritually and to lead his family as well, if God has blessed with children. And so we unpacked what that meant as well. And then the third week, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the, uh, the, definition, the definition of love. In fact, one of the cards that was turned in simply asked, what is love? And so we went to 1 Corinthians 13. And it is hard not to get a clear picture of love from 1 Corinthians 13, that it's patient, that it's kind, it's long-suffering, goes on and on and on. It tells what love is, what love is not. We talked about how uh, marriage is 100% zero. It's not 50-50 or a 100-100, but you do your 100% regardless of what comes back in return. That's the mindset that has to drive every healthy marriage. And so we looked at that just a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, we looked at a message entitled The Single Life. And uh, we unpacked what the Bible says about being a single person, an unmarried person. And the demographic here on these islands, singles uh, comprise a large percentage of people here on these islands, um, whether single and uh, never married or divorced or widowed. You put all those numbers together and there's a large segment of those that are unmarried who live on the islands. Thankfully, Scripture speaks to that. And so we took a couple of questions last week sifted them through scripture as well and uh, looked at what it means to be content uh, in our walks with Christ and uh, what it means to wait on God and to wait on his, his timing in our lives. Well, this morning I want us to look at a, uh, a message that's going to be geared around a couple of questions that were turned in specifically as well. Before I give you the title, let me just make mention of the quality of these questions that have been turned in. I mean, the, the quality of questions has just been tremendous. Great, great questions, burning questions that you wouldn't ask in a crowded room, you know, raising your hand, uh, but you'll jot them, jot them down on a piece of paper without putting your name, just great, great questions. Uh, most of them, however, I would say, have been better than, uh, than the one that we got most recently here. Uh, let's go ahead and put that one. Is it true that there is a special place reserved in heaven for Bulldog fans? <laughs> and do gators go to heaven, go dogs? That was a question that we uh, received. Um, burning question. Somewhere in this place, somebody can sleep good tonight, knowing that that question is off their chest and uh, they've got that out there. Uh, as for the, uh, the, the special place reserved in heaven where the Bible says no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who, who love him, who know him. So we'll have to wait, I guess, on that one. So far as gators going to heaven, as a good bulldog myself, I'd have to say that's one of the reasons we do missions and sending missionaries to, he <laughs> you know, to, uh, to heathen lands. Uh, and so... <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, let's pray. Uh, 
All right, so it's been good. It's been a good ride. You can certainly take that question down now. It'll be just fine. It's been good. We've gotten great questions that have been turned in. Uh, about 50 cards that have come in. Many of those cards have more than one question. I'd say well over 100 questions that have come in. We just can't get to every one of them. And so what I've, what I've done is I've tried, to, I've tried to deal with the questions that have been asked most, most often. Uh, I've tried to deal with questions that uh, just seem to really, they just kind of, they're, they're great questions. They're literally burning questions that just kind of grab, grab your heart and, and really, uh, really stir your heart. I don't, I don't enjoy preaching things that I'm not interested in. Uh, thankfully, uh, for this series, you've turned in such great questions. Every, every message has been enjoyable, at least for me. I don't know for you, but for me, I really enjoyed going through these. So this morning, I want to look at a message that I've entitled, Children and Adoption. You know, there's no fancy title for it, just looking at the issue of children and adoption. There have been a couple of questions that have been turned in that have just been just tremendous questions. And so here's what I'm going to say up front, is that as we, as we look at these questions, there are going to be two of them I'm going to deal with a little bit independently, but they have a lot in common. It's going to be hard to go away with a definitive answer of what the Bible says, because the Bible will not answer these two questions definitively. However, what I want us to do is, is we're going to look at some of the things that the Bible says, Old and New Testament. I want us to look at some passages that are just going to paint a picture for us and then for each of us, as individuals, as families, we will answer these questions on our own as God leads us with Scripture in mind, okay? So let's look at the first question that was turned in. I'll try to spend a little bit on this and then save a little bit of extra time for the second question. Here it is, turned in a number of weeks ago anonymously. In our society, there seems to be an expectation that once you get married, the next logical step is having children. What does the Bible say about those of us who do not want to have children for a multitude of reasons? And why do fellow Christians above anyone else seem so offended when you share that you do not plan to bring children into your family? A great, great question. Let me say this question is basically asking, what does the Bible say to those parents or to those, uh, to those who are married about the choice of starting a family? It's not speaking to those who, for whatever reason, are seeking to start a family and have, have not seen that take place. They've not conceived at this point. It's speaking to those who have made a definitive choice. We do not choose to have children at this time or at any point in our, in our married lives. That's what the question is asking, I believe. Is the question is, is it a sin to make the choice not to have children? And is it, how do you respond when people make you feel uh, uh, guilty over that specific choice. Let me just speak to the second part of that question, the very end, and I'll do that real briefly in regards to being made uh, to feel guilty or, or Christians being offended. I have no idea why a Christian would be offended by another person's choice not to, not to start a family. Um, I think about the Gospels at the end of the book of John whenever whenever uh, uh, Jesus was speaking to Peter, and he was un unpacking for Peter what his life would look like as it came to a close. And he was telling Peter of the suffering that would come as he followed Jesus. And if you remember at the end of John, Peter, would, Peter looked at Jesus, and he, as he probably pointed to John, Peter said, well, Lord, what about him? You know, what's, going, what's going to go on with him? And Jesus, in layman's terms, uh, the Brooks translation basically said, uh, Peter, you just pay attention to what pertains to you, and you let me handle him. So I think there's a point where we have to remember that as Christians, that there are choices that others make that are between them and God. 
There is no reason really we should be offended by another person's choice in this particular arena. But it is important for us to understand what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say. So let's, let's try to answer this question. You can go ahead and take the slide off the, uh, off the screen now. It'll be fine. Let's go ahead and, and answer this. Let, let me get you to turn to the book of Genesis chapter 1. We're going to paint a picture of what the Bible says about families, about what the Bible says about parenting, about what the Bible says concerning children as well. Obviously, we can't hit every passage, but we can try to uh, deal with those that will help to shape, a, I think, an accurate picture of how we should view children, how we should view family life as well. Genesis chapter 1, it's the first chapter of the whole Bible. All right, So early on, the Bible thankfully gives us a little bit of, of a picture of uh, how God views family life, uh, how God has created his creation to be able to experience family life. Look at what it says, Genesis chapter 1, look down in verse 27 and verse 28. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the, sky, uh, of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so the picture there is that in God's creative design, obviously, he created mankind to multiply. That's the way God fashioned us. He could have, he could have created mankind in any way he desired. However, he created us with the capacity to be able to see the human race procreate, multiply, and continue forward. That's the way that he has designed humankind. That's the way he's made people. And he tells us that, that he has created male and female. And so part of the original design, the way God forms life even still today is along those lines. That is obviously the norm. Well, if we jump ahead a little bit to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, you can turn there with me if you will. And by the way, we're going to hit quite a few passages this morning, more than the norm. But Deuteronomy, chapter 6, tells us then of the responsibility of parents to take care of those who are a part of their family. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Again, just painting the picture uh, as we move towards uh, an answer, hopefully, to this question. Deuteronomy 6. Let's look at verse 5. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and, he, and, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And so the scripture makes a very clear uh, 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 point there for parents specifically to be faithful, to pour into their children, to, to, uh, to instruct them, to discipline them, to disciple them, and to steer them into a relationship with God. It is a mandate. That is, that is very, very clear that parents have the command to lead their children into a close walk with God. Can't argue out of that, can't get away from it. In fact, you even get on further in the New Testament, you don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, the uh, command is given specifically to fathers not to provoke their children to anger, or, or not, to, not, to, uh, not to stir them to anger, uh, but to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. And so all through Scripture you see, Old and New Testament alike, this picture that parents have been, or, or people have been created with the capacity to build families, and as a result of that, we have the, the command to pour into them and to steer those children into a relationship with God. Here's the design. Here's what's kind of written between the, the lines there, is that as the, as the human race moves further and further and further through history, obviously, uh, mankind is falling further and further and further from God. 
And so the picture there is that as children are raised up in the, in the admonition of God, as they're raised up to walk with God, they are then going to be one day sent out as adults to impact this culture in which they live for the cause of Christ. That's the picture we see in Scripture. Is there a clear command? The Bible says that you shall have children yourself. It is a sin if you choose not to. You don't find that in Scripture. The two places in the Bible where it says to, to be fruitful and multiply, one is spoken to the very first couple. It's kind of a no-brainer. If you're going to continue, this is going to have to happen. Second time it's spoken, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, Noah and his family come off the ark. There's only eight of them. Hey, there's six more than there were, right? But still, if their human, human race is going to continue, it's imperative that you be fruitful and multiply. That's where we find it in Scripture. So can we say that it is a command, that it is the norm, or rather that that it is the mandate of God that every married couple must have a family or you are in sin? No, we can't go that far and say that. We'd be reading things into Scripture that God never designed. However, it is the norm. You say, Brooks, what does that mean? Well, let's just go back to last week. Remember, we also said in Scripture that the norm is marriage. But 1 Corinthians 7 says there are some that are called to a life of singlehood. Not kicking and screaming. It's a call that's freely embraced. There's joy that's there. There's great reward that's there. The norm is marriage, but there are some that are called to a life of singlehood. And in much the same way, the norm is for married couples to have children, build families. But it's not the direct command of God to do that. I think it would be wrong for us to assume that if a couple chooses not to start a family, they're somehow in sin. But we do need to understand what the Bible says about children. Psalm 127 says that uh, children are a blessing from the Lord. In fact, it speaks of the man whose quiver, the figurative language, this quiver is full of them. That children are a gift of God. Psalm 127 makes it real clear. Jesus, when he dealt with kids, he would not hesitate to pull a child to his side and use that child as, a, as, a, as an analogy, as a teaching uh, point, so to speak, to say, if you want to know what it takes to get to heaven, you have to have ch- a childlike faith like this child. Jesus would point to children as the example of what it even takes to get to heaven, childlike faith. Jesus would say that if you cause one of these little ones, and he probably was surrounded, even called some over to his son, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, Jesus said, it would be better for you, he said, to to have a, a heavy stone tied around your neck to be tossed in the deepest part of the sea if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. So Jesus took children and he placed them on a on a platform. He elevated them. And when you look at Scripture and you put the whole of Scripture together, you see that the norm amongst married couples is that, yes, that they begin to grow a family. Yes, that the choice is made to see that happen. Is it sin if they choose not to? I can't say that it would be. No, I wouldn't say that it's sin. However, there are a couple of questions that I think you'd be real wise to sift through. Two things to consider, and the two considerations are this. One, is our choice not to have children rooted in selfishness? It's uh, the norm. Scripture speaks highly of it. If we choose not to do it, is it because of our own selfishness? It's a question I think that has to be wrestled with. In other words, do we care more about what we have, what we'd lose if we had kids? and Are they somehow going to take away our freedom if we have children? Nowhere in the Bible do you see family dealt with from that perspective. And so if the choice is made out of selfishness, I think that's a hard issue that has to be addressed has to be has to be dealt with before god but then i think there's a second consideration as well and that consideration is do do i view children more as an inconvenience to be avoided as opposed to a gift to be received 
Because the Bible speaks of children, as I said in Psalm 127, as a gift from God. It uses that same language. And so when the choice is being made for married couples, and when you have friends that are making that choice, understand there is a lot that goes into it that you as a believer don't have any right to be offended by their choice. But if you are one of those couples, then you have those things to really wrestle with. Is it because of our our selfishness that needs to be addressed? Is it because we see kids as an inconvenience rather than a blessing? And so, no, the Bible doesn't mandate that thou shalt go and have children and that it's sinful if you choose not to. But I think those questions have to be addressed. So what's kind of the bottom line for that? I would say for the married couple, knowing that family is the, is the norm, what Scripture says about children specifically and about family life, knowing that it's part of the creative design itself, I think every Christian couple would be wise to consider that that would be a step that God would have them to take. And if God does not lead that way, then that's a choice that you make as a mature Christian before God. That leads us to a second question, one that may already be swirled in the minds of some. It was a great question that was turned in. Let's look at this one, the last one we'll look at this morning. It says, what does the Bible say in regard to adopting children? As a married couple with the means to do so, should we always be on the lookout for adoption opportunities Is it wrong to feel guilty if we have no desire to adopt? That is, again, a perfect example of what a burning question is. That is a great, great question. If you remember, that question asks much the same as the first. One, if we choose not to adopt, is it wrong and is it sinful? Should we feel guilty about this? Number two, what does the Bible say about all this? Before we jump in, let let me just remind you of a few famous adoptions in scripture you ever heard of Moses (laughs) he was adopted without going into the details of the story in the book of Exodus you you probably remember some of them Moses was born in a very tumultuous time in in, uh, Israelite history the fact there had been a a, a decree issued that uh, that would have mandated him to be killed as an infant Moses's mother out of a desire to preserve his life ultimately hid him along the edge of the Nile River sent him out in a little wicker basket, so to speak. And Moses was found by the very daughter of Pharaoh himself. And it was ultimately, long story short, Pharaoh's daughter who would raise Moses in Pharaoh's courts to adulthood. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, a hero of Old Testament history, a Hebrew of biblical history for that matter, was an adopted son. Esther, probably heard of Queen Esther, Today, in Jewish circles, Queen Esther still is revered above many others that you will read of in Old Testament history. It was Queen Esther who filled a spot, it would even say it, for such a time as this, that would help to preserve the lives of Hebrew people in that specific period of time. The book of Esther chronicles her life, and I would even say to a large degree, her ministry. But it was Queen Esther who was adopted by not her uncle, but her cousin Mordecai because Queen Esther's father and mother had passed away and it was her cousin Mordecai took her into his family and raised her as her own or as his own. In fact, could I even go so far as to say that the Lord Jesus Christ himself from a human perspective on this earth also lived as an adoptive son? Why? Because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit His earthly father, Joseph, was not his biological father, but it was Joseph. And if you remember what we would call the Christmas story and the passages of Scripture, especially in Matthew, you'd find that Joseph had some questions about the uh, conception 
of, uh, of, of his bride-to-be, Mary, as she carried Jesus. It was Joseph who endured probably the scorn of many people as he took Jesus in and as he raised him from a human perspective into adulthood. And so there is a biblical picture from some heroes of the faith, including our own Lord Jesus Christ himself, who have experience with what it means like to be adopted. And so whenever we look in Scripture, I think we have to understand that. But there is also that picture of what adoption was like back in the, in the biblical days. You see, in, in biblical days, Old and New Testament alike, uh, there, was a, there was a real issue with children that were born or, or that were um, uh, in a part of the culture that were in society that did not have father or mother. It was not uncommon in biblical days. 2,000 years ago, New Testament times, and then earlier than that in Old Testament days, it wasn't uncommon for children to grow up without a father or mother. You had disease, you had famine, you had um, war, you had diff- uh, different uh, scenarios that, that would impact the culture in those days. There were no orphanages in existence. The Roman government in the first century uh, did not provide in any way for orphans in that particular uh, point in time. And as a result of that, you had uh, a culture filled with children who had no parents. And if extended family did not reach in, if the body of Christ or others did not reach in, then you had these children that were left in hopeless situations to fend for themselves. And that's why we get to passages of Scripture that speak so highly in Old Testament and New Testament alike of caring for orphans. In fact, just listen to what it says in James towards the close of the New Testament just 2,000 years ago. Listen to what it says in the book of James chapter 1, verse 27. It says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. Now let me just pause for a moment. If you had never read the Bible, but you wanted to know about God, and you wanted to know about religion, so to speak, when you heard that phrase, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, you'd probably perk up and wonder, all right, what's this about to say? What does God view as pure religion? What does God view as undefiled religion? Listen to what he says. It's this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, was that a clear call? Is it an admonition? Is it a command that thou shalt adopt if you have the means? No, it's not that. But there is a picture that is painted there of the need for people to care for the most vulnerable and the weakest in their society. If we don't do that, we are not a civilized society. Who but Christians are going to clearly answer that call to care for those that are the weakest and those that are most vulnerable in our culture? It's Christians who should run point in responding to that. So is there a command to adopt if you have the means? No, it's not there. Is it sin if you choose not to adopt? No, I wouldn't say that. However, it is worthy of consideration based on what the Bible says that if a married couple has the means to do so, it is at least worthy of a conversation between them and God about that possibility. And by the way, so we don't forget, If you are a Christian, you have experience with adoption, don't you? Turn with me in the Bible, if you will, to the book of 1 John, chapter 3. It's towards the close of the New Testament. 1 John, chapter 3. The Apostle John had walked with Jesus for a long time. He's one of the original disciples, followers of Christ. 
decades later, he's pinning the words to this letter called 1 John. Look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. John looks back on his life, and he could see some rough spots. John could remember what it was like to come alongside of Jesus with his mama (laughs) and his brother and say, you know, Lord, when you get to heaven, how about if you will, just carve out a little spot on one side for, for my brother and the other side for me. We want to sit right there as close as we can get above everybody else. John remembered that conversation with Jesus. He probably looked back and thought, oh man, what was I thinking? (laughs) John remembered more than likely the time they were passing through a little village with Christ and the townspeople rejected Jesus and everything he had to say. And it was John with his fiery personality back then who would say, hey Lord, can we just call down a little fire from heaven here just torch these people right here on the spot? That's in the Bible. Of course, Jesus said, nah, (laughs) let's not do that. But that was the kind of guy that he was. Not a whole lot of love for people that didn't think the way he did. It was John, I'm sure he could remember this, that when Jesus was arrested to be taken off for his uh, six trials and ultimately crucified, it was John that hightailed it with the other guys, abandoning Jesus at his time of need. And so here's John, no doubt, looking back on those experiences, and he says... See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. And in amazement, you can almost sense the emotion in his voice. In amazement, he says that we, even we, even those who have abandoned him, even those who have sinned against him, even those of us who are so prideful that even we would be called children of God, and such we are, he says. You see, John understood what it meant like to be adopted into the family of God. He understood what it meant to walk in darkness and then suddenly to be snatched out of that darkness and to be placed in light. He knew what it was like to be in sin, lost and hopeless in this world, dead in that sin, and to be snatched out of that sin, have it forgiven, and to be placed, seated in the highest places, Ephesians says, given all godliness to be able to walk in real relationship with God. John understood what that was like. In fact, listen to what Paul writes in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. He says in verse 4, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those of us who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. If you are a Christian this morning, you are a Christian because you have been adopted into the family of God. He goes on to say, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. There is not one person in this building, there is not one person who will ever inhabit heaven, who has ever been created, that can say, you know what, I've been here ever since the very beginning. Only Jesus can say that, and he wasn't created, he is God. There is not one person, when you're walking those streets of gold, Christian, one day, and you're striking up conversations with Peter and John and all the other people you want to talk to when you're there, there is not one person that you'll meet there that'll say, you know what, I've always been a Christian. 
Every single one of us came out of our sin by God's grace into a faith relationship with Christ. Every one of us who are Christians got there, got that way, and are going to get there because we've been adopted into the family of God. You know what it's like to be adopted. You would not be a Christian unless you had been. So you know what it's, right, what it's like to be bankrupt spiritually and to have spiritual blessings imparted on your behalf. Do you understand that? And so if you're a recipient of God's adoption of you, could we agree that as a part of that relationship, God calls us to reflect his love in much the same way to those around us? You know, I I realize in a group this size and in our first service that there are some here who are adults who were adopted into a family. You were chosen. And what a tremendous picture of how God chose you for his own there are some here who are parents I would expect in a room this size each of our services that have adoptive children you know more than anybody else the magnificence and the beauty of what it means to have as a part of your own family one that hasn't been there from the very beginning. You understand salvation at a depth that many of us cannot. And would not God choose for us, at the very least, to at least take his love, which has been lavished on us, and to pass it on to those that are weakest and the most vulnerable in our culture? Listen to what a theologian by the name of John Piper has written. This is interesting what he writes. He says, God's purpose in making marriage the place to have children was never merely to fill the earth with people, but to fill the earth with worshipers of the true God. One way for a marriage to fill the earth with worshipers of the true God is to procreate, bring children up in the Lord. But that's not the only way. When the focus of marriage becomes make children disciples of Jesus, the meaning of marriage in relation to children is not merely make them, but make them disciples. Listen to this. And the latter can happen even when the former does not. You say, Brooks, I have the means to adopt. The Bible doesn't tell me that I'm commanded to do so. Yes, there is a picture there of the benefit and the value and the blessing and the joy that comes from that choice. But no, it's not commanded. It's not a sin not to adopt. But there are a couple of considerations, I think, that would be wise. One, if I have a means to do so, have I chosen not to do so because of my own selfishness? You see, it's the same question that has to be wrestled with. A second question to wrestle with is, am I taking sinful measures that keeps me from having a family? In other words, am I placing my own comfort, my own happiness above a step of obedience that God may want me to take? And those are things that have to be dealt with between you and God. There are some that it would be wrong to choose to adopt. There are some dangers. There are some cautions. 
You don't need to adopt out of guilt or out of obligation. You know, you hear a message like this or you read a devotional that deals with it and you feel so guilty. Okay, I'll do it. You start the No, you know, when, when I asked Susie to marry me, what if, she, what if she had said, yes, because it's what God wants for my life? I would have thought, well, do you want this for your life? <laughs> Don't just do this out of obligation. <laughs> yeah, that'd be kind of a bummer. Yeah, don't do it just, just because you feel guilty if you don't. You know, it's what God wants. No, I want you to want this too, and thankfully she did. And still does, thankfully. <laughs> so if you make that choice, you know, there has to be heart work that takes place. Remember the passage from last week where it talks about delighting ourselves in the Lord and He will give us the desires of our heart. And there are times that if we're open to choices, even such as adoption, and we make that a matter of prayer, we make that a matter of conversation with our spouse, and as you work through that, there may be a real possibility that God may steer your heart to take that step. And if you do, and you're in a place to do so, you walk through that, not out of obligation, not out of guilt, but out of the sense of great joy, that even as God has adopted me, I have the privilege of doing the same in the life of another, and possibly even being the vehicle through which they get led to Jesus, and their whole eternity changes as a result. And there's another consideration, that your family, that your marriage be at a place of great health, that if there are issues of anger, obviously, or difficulties that have come that need to be worked through there's a right time for that choice but i believe the christian community would be better served to at least consider and to be open to this choice is it a sin not to do so no is it worthy of our consideration i think for far too long it's not even been considered what's the takeaway this is an interesting interesting message it's a couple of great questions, but an interesting message. I've never preached on this topic before and don't know if I ever would again. I, I don't know. So what's the takeaway? You know, you may say, you know, Brooks, I'm 98 years old and I really don't see this applying to me a whole lot right now. You know, I, I'm not planning on pulling an Abraham and Sarah, you know, out of the hat here anytime soon and uh, I don't think I'd be approved for adoption. So what do I do with this message? You may be unmarried, you know, you may be single and you think, does this apply to me? Let, let me just give you a takeaway that I think is going to apply for every single one of us. The takeaway is this, is that our adoption into God's family necessitates, it necessitates our investment in the lives of children. Because you as a Christian have been adopted into the family of God, sh sheerly, simply because of that, because you've been adopted into the family of God by His grace and shown His favor, that fact in itself necessitates your investment into the lives of children. And I don't know what that looks like for you. Susie and I have a friend as an example. This is a, an interesting example. She, uh, she felt led. She's very godly, has a close walk with God. She serves with a, uh, a local ministry that uh, places children in adoptive families. But she serves in a very interesting capacity. The birth mother will give birth to the child. And before it transitions and is placed into the adoptive family, she is the one who nurtures and cares for and takes in that child for a matter of weeks before it's handed over to the family that rate, will, will take it as their own, as their own son, as their own daughter. And she fills that bit of a void, giving a nurturing, caring, loving home and presence until that child transitions into the family that it will be a part of for the rest of its life. That's how she makes an investment. Your investment may be in the lives of children through a preschool ministry or children's ministry or student ministry. No, I'm not trying to give a shameless plug to those three ministries in our church, but I can tell you that my kids have been impacted because many of you have poured into their lives. 
I can even tell you this, that there are students in our student ministry that, that will babysit for Susie and I whenever we have an opportunity to go out together, and we'll, we'll um, have one of, those, uh, one of those students, and we pay them. We, uh, we'll have one of those students to babysit for us. And I'll tell you this, I was telling Susie this just a week or two ago. I said, you know what, what a tremendous example for Hannah, specifically, because she's at that age right now. She's seven, and uh, she, she's able to have conversations. You know, she's thinking a little bit more, more deeply now as she grows older. I said, what a tremendous blessing it is to have some of these girls from our student ministry who love God and they're living lives of purity. And if they are just willing to model for our children what it looks like to want with Jesus, what a, what, a, what a blessing that is. And they expect it to come from us, but they don't expect it to come from a 16-year-old. And when they see that investment, that is an example of this. That Surely because we've been adopted into the family of God, we, it, it necessitates that we invest our lives in the lives of children. Shame on us if we don't do that. And we can do that in a, in a million different ways. For some of you that on your plate may be the decision to, to be a foster parent. It may be a decision to adopt. It may be a, a decision to start a family of your own. It may be a decision to, in the world where God has planted you, to invest there to make a difference in the life in the life of a child. And why is it that we can see uh, uh, images and photographs and commercials on television of children halfway around the world and our heart be stirred and moved by guilt and compassion? And rightly so, so to, uh, I would say. But why is it that we can be so moved to see images on a screen of life a half a world away, but yet we have very little compassion for those that are also weak and vulnerable right here in our own backyard? And there are students that run this island whose mom and dad could care less where they are, could care less what they do, could care less where they end up. They're too busy chasing the dollar, too busy climbing the corporate ladder. And you have a privilege of being able to come alongside of one of those students, one of those kids, and to say, I'm going to invest my life in you to make a difference. And you may never thank me for it, but it's what I'm called to do because I've been adopted myself into the family of God. So we all got something to take away from this sermon. We've all got a choice to make. Is it a sin not to start a family? Can't say that it is. But I surely wouldn't let guilt or I surely wouldn't let selfishness or fear keep you from doing it. Is it a sin not to adopt when I have the means so, to do so? I can't say that it is. But I would surely say to consider and make sure that selfishness or fear or some other hindrance doesn't come in the way and to at least consider what God may have you to do in the life of one who could need you. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard to share a message like this and not be reminded that I am who I am surely because of my relationship with Christ. Lord, it's hard for me to preach a message like this and not be reminded that that you extend an offer to every single person here who doesn't know you to be adopted even today into a relationship that will never ever.